0: So we're looking at Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40, found on page 581 in the Bibles, page 581 in the Bibles, Isaiah 40. And once you have it open, just uh, leave it open, just put it open on your laps for a minute because we've got to kind of get the setup, we have to figure out what's happening at this point in the book of Isaiah. So you may remember way back the very first sermon we had on this. We said that the first half of Isaiah is about death and the second half of Isaiah is about resurrection. So Isaiah 1 through 39 Everything we've done so far is about death. It's about judgment. It's about what God is going to do to his people. And then starting in Isaiah 40, there's a turn. There's hope. There's movement. However, there's a big gap in history between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40. And in this gap, after the last thing in 39 was written, which if you'll just look at it, it was about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king, and the emissaries come from Babylon, and he shows them everything he owns. And the prophet says to him, Well, you know, everything that you just showed them, they are going to own. And Hezekiah is like, Well, you know, it's gonna happen after I'm gone, so whatever. Really invested in his people, Hezekiah. So that's what happens. The Babylonians come in, they take the Jews off into exile, they destroy Babylon, they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy everything that the people love and they bring some exiles to Babylon and the people are in exile and they are miserable everything that they knew everything that they loved is gone and then they don't hear anything from God they don't see him at work at all and the exile goes a year and then 10 years and then 20 years and then 40 years and then 60 years And they're starting to say things like, I don't don't think Yahweh remembers who we are. I don't think he really cares about us anymore. Because if Yahweh was actually the loving and powerful God that apparently (laughs) our ancestors thought he was, wouldn't he do something here? Wouldn't he step in? If he's supposedly so great, why are we stuck here? Why are we still in exile? Their misery to them was proof of God's absence. We're miserable, God's not here. He's forgotten us, he doesn't care. Because a powerful God, a loving God, when his people are miserable, he should do something about it. Right? I mean, right? We get that. We've come from communities where we pray and pray and pray for someone to live and the person dies. And we think, has God forgotten us? You pray for guidance about your future. What are you supposed to study? Where are you supposed to go to graduate school? Are you supposed to date anybody now or not? You just. <laughs> You wait for guidance and there's just nothing. Some of us have prayed and prayed and prayed for people we love, people who are near and dear to us, who are far from God, to somehow have a change of heart, to somehow be curious about Jesus or Scripture or church or anything, and there's nothing. And we think, is God just not paying attention? Has He just forgotten? And some of us go through seasons where we don't hear God, we don't see God, we don't feel God, we don't experience God in any way. And we plead with him for some kind of revelation, some sign that he's interested in us, and there is silence. And we think, is God forgotten? Has God completely forgotten? The community that the Jews were in, in Babylon, was a community that not in any way reinforced their trust in Yahweh. The Babylonians had built quite a nice empire all on their own. And so the Jews were ridiculed for believing in a powerful God. Why do you do that? Why do you believe in this God who's done nothing for you? You are in exile, we rule you, we own you. We live in a seminal culture. Why do you believe in a God who doesn't do what you want? I mean, shouldn't religion do something for you? Shouldn't it be working for you in some way? Oprah's got a new series out about belief and why people believe what they believe. And in her mind, it's all just neutral, you know? Believe whatever works for you. It's totally fine. So the idea that you would want to believe in a God who demands more than he gives, why would you do that? And so we wonder... Has God forgotten? Does he not care? Is he real? Is he around? The psalmist said, how long will you forget me? This is an old problem. This is an old problem with fresh angles and deep pain. And it's into this it's right smack into that pain. It's right in the middle of this anxiety. It's right into this space where the people of God think that God is not. That Isaiah 40 comes. This is the hope. This this is the new word. And we're going to walk through Isaiah 40. We'll kind of hit the beginning and the end of it a little more intimately. But look at how it starts. Now imagine, the people have been in exile for over 60 years. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting for God. And this is the first word that they hear. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. In Hebrew, the word comfort doesn't just mean all. It'll be okay, Mary. It'll be okay. It has a soothing aspect and an action aspect. I will make you feel better. I will give you some chicken soup, and then I will hunt down whoever it was who hurt you. That's the idea. Comfort with soothing and comfort with action. So, what is the action step that is taken? Verse 2: Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she's served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she's received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. Now, we may read that and go, oh, well, she had like a 70-year sentence for disobedience. She served it, and now she's free. She's just done, like she's paid her debt, like it's it's all over. Except for the fact that 70 years in exile do not really make up for hundreds of years of disobedience hundreds of years of going after Baals and Ashterahs, hundreds of years of disobedience and ignoring the law, hundreds of years of exploiting the poor, taking advantage of widows and orphans, hundreds of years of arrogance and pride. Those things aren't paid off in 70 years in exile. So what's happening here in verse two is God is acting. God is saying, I forgive you. You're forgiven. You're forgiven because I forgive you. Not because of anything you've done, but because that's who I am. And I forgive you. So the action that God takes is to completely erase the sin. And that was a lot of sin. I mean, we've been talking about that for weeks, all the sin. He says, it's done. Speak tenderly to her. Tell her it's all taken care of. It's all done. And then in 3 through 5, we have this great image. A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, back in this time period, When a king came back victorious from battle, the people would literally improve the roads. They would literally get out a road construction crew and level them out. They would fill in the potholes and they would take out the roots so that when the king came back victorious, if he was riding in a chariot, it would be a nice, smooth ride. Because it's very embarrassing to be a king coming back from battle and have your chariot get stuck in a pothole. (laughs) It's very embarrassing. They're trying to avoid that at all costs. And so they prepare the road so he can just come in and like do the the wave, you know? Like do the wave, coming on in, being royal, being victorious. And that's the image we're given here. So the comfort comes in forgiveness, and the comfort comes in God himself coming. He is going to come like a victorious king, and everybody's going to see it. In verse 6 through 8, we have a hearkening back to chapters 1 through 39. A little reminder of what got us here. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. So what we've seen Actually, through the entire Old Testament up until now, is that God's people are very flaky. They are very (laughs) fickle. They are not constant. They fade all the time. They're in, they're out, they're hot, they're cold, back and forth. But the prophet says, The word of the Lord stands forever. And in Hebrew, the, the word for word, is kind of an adaptable word that can mean word and action and promise and all of those things all together. The prophet says, the word of the Lord, the promises of the Lord, the decrees of the Lord, these things stand forever. So even though you've all been fickle, and even though you've all been in exile, the promises of the Lord still hold. Even though you don't feel them, even though you don't see them, even though you are still waiting for some of them to come to fruition, the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is good news. This is news that the people needed to hear. And so they use the language again of a herald who had run before the king and tell them the good news. 9 Get up on a high mountain, O Zion herald of good tidings, Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Here is your God. I know you haven't seen him for a while. This is what he looks like. This is what he's about. In fact, the rest of the chapter is the prophet introducing the people to their God. Here's your God. This, this is actually what he looks like. See, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Here's a fun fact I learned this week. So when kings came back victorious on their very nice roads, everything that they had won in battle went ahead of them. So if they got a lot of treasure, they'd be like, a big cart with all the gold on it. And if they raided somebody else's temple, there'd be all the things from their temple. And if they captured individual people, all the people would be paraded. There'd be this big parade of everything that the the king had won going ahead of him. So when it says, his reward is with him and his recompense before him, it's this image that God is coming in and his bounty, his treasure, is the people. The people who have been set free Instead of taking them captive, he actually sets them free and says, these are my people, look at my people, aren't they great? They're so great. His reward is with him and his recompense before him is the sign to Israel, like you are treasure to him. And he has set you free. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. Now, as you know, the imagery of sheep and shepherds is all throughout the Old Testament. And so you have this image of this mighty warrior king, his arm rules, and then you have, oh, no shepherd will the sheep. Right? Some of you may have gone to post-family farm. Did they have any baby goats out there right now? Shake your head no or nod yes. Yes, they had baby goats. Okay. Totally adorable, right? Totally adorable baby goats. And... That's the image, like, of a shepherd who's like, oh, look at the little baby go. So you have the, like, his arm rules, he is mighty. And then you have, oh, he's got a little baby go. (laughs) So the prophet is saying to the people, you've got two things in one here. You've got the mighty, you've got the strong, you've got the all-powerful, and you've got somebody who's going to cradle you when you're hurting. Here is your God. Here is your God. And he picks these themes up all the way. This is your God, this is what he looks like. We're just gonna kinda skip through this next little bit. Number 12, God has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, how about that? All the waters, Lake Michigan, Lake Superior, Lake Erie, Atlantic Ocean, Indian Ocean, St. Lawrence River, The (laughs) sempond. All of it in the hollow of his hand. So the prophet is saying, that big. Your God is that big. The end of 12. He weighs the mountains in scales. Weighs them in scales. Oh, Everest, a little bit. Go Kilimanjaro. Weighs them in the scales. 15. Even the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales see he takes up the aisles like fine dust he's reminding of look here is your god here is your god here is your god and then 18 he does this little like to whom you're going to compare him really an idol really you can just hear the sarcasm a workman casts it a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. As a gift, one chooses mulberry wood, wood that won't rot. Then seeks out a skilled artisan to set up an image that will not topple. Ooh. <laughs> Very impressive. And then, 25. To whom then will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Lord of hosts. Here is your God, says the prophet. Here is your God. Here is your God. Here is your God. Idol, not your God. So we get to 27, and the prophet says, So why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Why are you saying that God's forgotten you? Why are you saying that? Come on, Israel. Come on, Jacob. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. The creator of the ends of the earth. And when the psalmist and the prophets and when these people who write about God talk about him as creator, they're not just talking about something that happened a long, long time ago. They're talking about his identity as one who creates And he is always creating. And because he has created you, he has invested in you. Because you are his treasure. Some of you have done really great projects, really great papers. Some of you have done really great recitals. And if someone were to go to the Center Art Gallery, let's say around May, when all the seniors put up their art up there, and just like mess it all up. And just go up there and mess it up. We can't say to the seniors, oh, you know, it's no big deal. It's like paper and watercolor. I mean, that's all that was really. And you had like dirt here, like you molded it into some kind of form, but basically it's just dirt and water put in a fire for hot, to make it hot for a while. That's what we're dealing with. So shake it off. And they would look at you like you were insane. Because when you have created something, you have poured yourself into it. Your literal fingerprints are on it. You are proud of it. Some of you have written papers that should be put on your parents' refrigerators. You are proud of these things. You have poured yourself in, you have created. You don't forget that. You don't just throw that aside. So the prophet here is saying he's the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't forget. He doesn't faint or grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary and the young will fall exhausted, but those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles, they will run and not be weary, they will walk and not faint. This entire chapter Is about reminding the people of who God is. Because the core problem is not that God has forgotten them. The core problem is that they have forgotten God. They have forgotten all about Him. They've forgotten who He is and His power and His hands and the scales and the majesty. They've totally forgotten Him. And when you forget God, you get into trouble. You're very susceptible to lies. You're very susceptible to other people saying, I don't think he's here. I think he's forgotten us. Their problem was not that God had forgotten them. Their problem was that they had forgotten God. On Friday in chapel, we sang a song, and the lyrics of it were, I believed the lie that you were not strong enough. I believed the lie That you were not strong enough. In scripture, Satan is called the father of lies. And I think some of the lies he spreads most widely are lies about God. That he's not strong enough. He can't really help you with that. The reason you don't feel him anymore is because he's not there. He doesn't really care about you that much. So pray all you want, but just know he's he's busy doing other things. He's not strong enough. He doesn't love you that much. He's not that powerful. (coughs) Why do you keep praying? Why do you keep giving and serving and doing all this stuff? Why do you keep worshiping a God who's so demanding? I mean, come on. And these are the lies that he tells us again and again and again. And these are the lies that are enforced by our culture that says to us, don't worship something that demands so much of you. And if you don't feel something in your worship, then obviously you're doing it wrong. These are the lies that come in again and again and again. (coughs) So how do we live as people who are in exile? We're still waiting for God to come back. How do we do this? At the end of this chapter, there's that really famous section. You know, it's find greeting cards and posters and you see the eagle's wings, right? But the core of what he's really saying there is you have to wait on the Lord. You have to wait on the Lord. Now, there's something unusual about this kind of waiting because he says it actually renews you. This kind of waiting renews you. So this isn't kind of the waiting that you wait in the line at Press and it's five o'clock and it's really long and everyone's there and you're just basically biding the time in awkward conversation until you actually get to go in and eat. <laughs> it's not the waiting you do in class before your professor actually gets there and you're just checking random Facebook things just to pass the time. It's not waiting where we're just kind of hanging around <laughs> unplugged and detached. To wait on the Lord is to remember what the Lord has done in the past and to anticipate what he's going to do in the future. To wait on the Lord is to be a storyteller. To wait on the Lord is to be one who says, I remember God I remember what he has done. We remember what he has done. This is why the Jews have festival after festival after festival because they are remembering what God has done. This is why scripture got written down so that we could remember what God has done. And so when we wait on the Lord, we recall the testimonies. We recall how he provided for the people, how he took them out of Egypt, how he parted the sea, how he fed them with manna and water from a rock, how he gave them land, how he called them his beloved. We remember that one day there was this angel and she came and she talked to this girl and she said, you're gonna have a baby and that actually happened. And we remember this guy, Jesus. And remember that he really liked children. And we remember, that he liked to raise people from the dead and heal people. And we remember that he was betrayed, and that he was killed, and that he rose again. And that between his resurrection and his ascension, he spent 40 days teaching all of his followers all the things they needed to know. And we remember that Peter who denied him, Peter who turned away, Peter who said, I don't remember, I do not know, this is not my person. That Peter was forgiven and commissioned. We remember that even when we forget, God remembers And he restores us and he says, I've got work for you to do. And we remember Peter on Pentecost giving the sermon and then he goes and he heals people and he shapes the church. We remember. And we don't just remember these stories. We remember these stories. We remember the story about a man who had brain cancer and he died and his parents sat right there and praised God. We remember that when we had confession time a few weeks ago, there were streams of us who went forward and said, I confess my sin and receive forgiveness. We remember That there are people in our community who are struggling under addiction and are moving toward recovery. We remember that when we had communion last week, we announced that the community care fund giving is twice as much this year as it was last year. We remember and we tell these stories and we testify. And at the end of the Bible study on Isaiah, at the end of this series, we're going to have a service where we testify. We're going to have a service where we tell stories and say, this is what I learned. This is what God taught me through Isaiah. This is how we wait on the Lord. And we do it together. This is how we wait on the Lord. We remember who he is and what he has done. We tell the stories of who he is and what he has done. Because he is the creator of the ends of the earth. And he's the one who holds you in the palm of his hand. We remember, we remember, we remember the God who never forgets.